So welcome back, everyone. If you have your video and can uh, turn that on, it's nice for me to see people as I'm talking. So again, uh, good morning, uh, good afternoon, uh, good evening. I like, I like that. It's one of the fun things to do with Zoom. And I, I also get, to, I know we have people also in, uh, in France and in uh, Germany, so I can show off my French and German and say, Bonsoir and Guten Abend. <laughs> so so uh, I want to continue to explore uh, the nature of awakening. It's something we've been looking at for a number of sessions and I want to give a little more uh, depth on the uh, seven factors of awakening and particularly focus on the two qualities that we looked at in the uh, meditation that I gave some guidance on for the meditation, which are really the foundational, the foundational factors. We could say of the seven factors of awakening, the most important are, and where we really begin are mindfulness and equanimity. So I want to give a little more depth to those and particularly talk about how to practice in both our formal meditation and in daily life, but situate the discussion of mindfulness and equanimity within the uh, larger intention to awakening. So a, a very, very brief review of some of what we've already covered. You know, awakening is the metaphor that's used to point to the whole goal of our practice. The goal of practice is to awaken, and I think there's an understanding that awakening also is about helping others. So it's not just this private search, although there's, there's certainly the individual search is certainly part of it. But I think it's understood, um, you can see that from the life of the Buddha, who had his awakening and then spent minimally 45 years helping others. That's also very much found in some of the understandings of later Buddhist tradition where the goal is to awaken and to always have the motivation to help others and to benefit others. So this in a way is our, is our North Star, right? This is our this is what we use for orientation. It's this intention of awakening. Again, it's a metaphor. The Buddha is using the ordinary word in the, uh, you know, in the language, in, in the language that we have in translation, Pali. The ordinary word, bud, it refers to what happens when one wakes up in the morning. 
So it's the ordinary notion for waking up in the morning becomes something that is metaphorically suggesting that there is a way of being in which we are no longer asleep. We're no longer dreaming. We're no longer sleepwalking. And one of the results of our practice can be that we notice, sometimes with some distress, how much we are on automatic or how much we are just repeating habituated thinking, how much we are just at the mercy of our habits, many of which come from the society or the culture, a lot of which come from um, early childhood experience as well. And so part of what we discover in practice is how our minds work. And I think this can be also a source sometimes of distress, as I mentioned, but also really of compassion for ourselves and others for how much we live with um, a bunch of habits, some of them good, some of them not so good. And we, when we start practicing, when we start practicing mindfulness, we notice those habits. They're right, as it were, in our face. Not always, not always so pleasant. The Tibetan teacher uh, Chagyam Trungpa Rinpoche once said, self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> We, we can quibble about the percentage. But it's basically saying a lot of what we actually notice in our minds, we might have wished we didn't notice, but it actually is helpful, right? Because if we notice, let's say, a bad habit or even a good habit that we uh, overdo, you know. So my, my main example that I remember from starting meditation practice was that I came from a a family of planners, you know, and I, you know, my sister has a master's degree in planning. You know, it happened to be urban planning, and she makes her living doing planning, uh, which is beneficial, a good thing. But I noticed when I looked at my mind that a large percentage of my meditation time, I was just sitting there planning, right? And I was a student at the time, and I, I, I remember that sometimes I would have, uh, you know, a, a report to give in class or something in three days. And I would plan it out in my mind when I was meditating 80 times, right? And one of my blazing insights into what sometimes is called the blazing insight into the, the really obvious is that I thought, you know, 80 times to plan out my little report five-minute, ten-minute report, um, 20 would be quite adequate, <laughs> right? And so this was, this was, uh, this is part of what the whole notion of awakening means, that we, we are more than we might like to admit on automatic. This, you know, that we are, you know, in some of the traditions, again, it could be said that we're, that we're in a more like a dreamlike state. Sometimes when we 
when we practice a lot, we think, gosh, my ordinary mind, you know, is on automatic and it has aspects that are dreamlike. I'm just sort of going, you know, automatically somewhat dreamlike. So that's the metaphor. And so when we wake up, when we have this awakening, it's said that we see clearly and we don't, we're not so driven by our habits. We're not so driven by our conceptual minds. And we actually can see the world in a different way. And again, we, we sometimes talk about this, how sometimes I certainly experienced when I was initially meditating that I could actually look out at a sunset and not be caught in thought so much. <clears throat> or I could be with a tree or be with a friend and actually have a quality of open presence that wasn't totally wrapped up in thinking. How many can relate to that you know, with your own experience? I think that's very... And so that's part of what awakening means. And there's, there's the sense, and the Buddha particularly talked about uh, awakening as being free from greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's a lot that's packed into what we mean by greed, hatred, and delusion, isn't there? Right? It's really him. He's using those terms to mean all the ways that we're habituated, even all my, you know, repetitive planning. That's a kind of delusion because I, I wasn't aware of what was happening. I was just caught up in all the planning. Again, not totally negative, but uh, something that over time, you know, I've, I've let go of a lot of that planning. The Buddha says those who have fully, those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, have destroyed, have destroyed the negativities. They are luminous and completely liberated. And so the Buddha is emphasizing these factors of awakening, which I'll come back to in a moment. And he, he also, at times, to, to review a little bit, he sometimes talked about awakening more positively. The most common account was saying we cut through greed, hatred, and delusion. But he also talked about awakening sometimes as entering into a kind of awareness, which is, he said, signless, we would say non-conceptual, boundless, and luminous. And when we've looked at that in our sessions here, most people said they could have, they could recall some kind of experience, even if it was brief, sometimes in the wilds, where there was this sense of a vast awareness that we come into, at least momentarily, that seems to have some similarities to this quality of awakening. Sometimes in the, in the forest, in the wild, sometimes when our hearts are deeply open, we have this sense of opening to something vast where we're actually not in our ordinary minds. Again, how many, just a little show of hands, at least had moments of that, right? And so this is, this is what's being pointed to. And again, we find it in other Buddhist traditions, in the Thai forest tradition, it's sometimes called coming back to the primal mind beyond greed, hatred, and delusion. Or Achan Cha, the teacher of Jack Kornfield, talks about it as returning to the old mind, our original mind. The, the nature of this original mind is unwavering and tranquil. We want to find our way there. 
And so, again, this is our, this sense of awakening is our, is our North Star. And I also pointed in, in, in um, one or two of the sessions to how I think that we may, we need actually more contemporary resources as well, we could say, to help us cut through some of the greed, hatred, and delusion that we have because of contemporary conditioning. And I talked particularly about the need for ways to look into our more psychological conditioning using some of the resources from, I think, from Western psychological traditions, and also look into our social conditioning, particularly around gender and race and age and sexual orientation and so forth, that these are also forms of conditioning that keep us caught in greed, hatred, and delusion. And that we need to have maps of awakening and ways of practicing that help us cut through that. So this is really pointing to what we might call a contemporary map of awakening, which integrates the traditional understandings with sort of contemporary pointers that help us to see forms of conditioning that aren't necessarily on the traditional maps, even if they more broadly can fit under greed, hatred, and delusion. So I went into more detail on that in another session, and that that talk, if you want to listen to that, is on is on Dharma Seed. So here I want to emphasize, come back to the traditional model, and we can bring in you know, contemporary perspectives where that makes sense, and particularly talk um, briefly about the seven factors of awakening as a whole, and then more specifically about the first and the last of them, which could be said to be foundational. These are mindfulness and equanimity. And I'm going to talk about how we cultivate them, both in our formal practice and then especially in our everyday lives. And I'm going to invite us to take as our practice assignment for the next period of time to cultivate either mindfulness or equanimity or both of them for the next period of time. And I'll give a lot of suggested ways to practice. So the... the the term for the uh, factors of awakening is uh, bojanga. And that is made up of two roots, one for boj, which is a, a root related to awakening or bodhi, and anga means a factor. So these are the, we have the seven bojanga, the seven factors of awakening. And these are as we've looked at before, these come in three sets. The first is mindfulness, which is valuable all the time, and which is a balancing factor. Then there's a set of three energizing factors, including inquiry or investigation, energy, sometimes translated as resolve to really keep practicing, and then thirdly, joy or rapture. These energize our practice and are particularly important when our practice feels a little bit sluggish. And there are many passages where the Buddha says, when you feel sluggish in your practice, use the one of these three. Remembering mindfulness is always helpful, but use uh, 
use inquiry or investigation, things that bring about more energy, and then joy or rapture or bliss can be really, really helpful. And then there are three uh, stabilizing factors which are useful when the mind is restless or overly agitated. And these are tranquility and concentration and equanimity. And so we have uh, mindfulness, the set of three energizing factors, and the set of three stabilizing factors. And you can really see how when we have this as a model, we can, we can know, oh, what's, what's a factor of awakening to bring about right now? Oh, I'm feeling really agitated. I just had something difficult happen. What's wise to develop? One of the stabilizing factors. Or I'm feeling kind of feeling kind of calm, but a little bit sort of muddy and a little bit sleepy. What's wise? Let's do one of the three energizing factors. You know, let's do let's do some inquiry. Let me just uh, or let me bring about more energy. So this is a a very valuable model. And the seven factors are the qualities that are present when we are awake. They're all there. And they're also the factors that help bring about awakening. So these are factors that in some ways we want to keep track of all the time. Because when we develop this, these seven factors, we move towards awakening. We have, more, we have more awakened moments. The Buddha once said that the seven factors slant and slope and incline us towards awakening and nibbana towards nirvana, towards, towards freedom. They are the seven precious gems of a wheel-turning monarch, he said. That was a metaphor, you know, from 2,600 years ago. But let's just say these are the jewels that uh, can really guide us. I use the metaphor, they're the North Star. So let me talk about uh, let me talk then about mindfulness and equanimity, and then we can have some discussion. So mindfulness is always valuable. I think many of you know that um, mindfulness, according to a lot of scholars, is the distinctive method of the Buddha. You know that many of the concentration techniques were available among the yogis of India before the Buddha was alive. But his innovation is to bring about this tool of mindfulness, of being able to see clearly in the moment in a way that over time brings about wisdom and lets us have an appropriate response to the moment based on seeing clearly. He said in the, um, the core text on mindfulness, called The Foundations of Mindfulness, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. He said that mindfulness is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the attainment of the way. He could have said for awakening. This is the direct path because with mindfulness, we cut through our habits, our conditioning. We see clearly. 
there is there it's very interesting there in the um, I was told this by a, a native Chinese speaker that the way that mindfulness got translated into Chinese there's there's a pictogram which has uh, I think three characters one of them is present moment and the other one is a combination of the heart and a sense of home or, or house. And so we could say that mindfulness is making a home for the heart-mind in the present moment. It's quite beautiful. I wish we had something like that in English, right? What does mindfulness mean in English? Being full of one's mind? I, I don't know. I, I would Let's have another translation. I like making a home for the heart in the present moment. Beautiful. Really amazing. And so, you know, what does it, uh, what does it look like? Um, you know, what does, what does, uh, what does mindfulness look like? What, what's really characteristic of mindfulness? First of all, um, mindfulness remembers and keeps attentive to whatever is present in our experience. The etymology of mindfulness is connected with actually remembering and memory. That we, with mindfulness, we remember, we see clearly what's happening in the moment. We do this on the basis of first having a stable attention. And so sometimes we, you know, in our practice, we typically develop some concentration before we can really be mindful. So our mindfulness is being available for the present moment, first by developing some stability of mind. And this may be, this may be uh, right at the center of our practice for a while, just getting more and more stable so we can see clearly. And when we do so, we can more, in a more direct way, be with our experience. So we're not so bound up with our stories, right? We're, we're more directly with our experience. We can be with the um, sensations of the body or with the emotions, somewhat freed from the storyline. That so much of our experience is wrapped up with a narrative or a story. Which is, which is important and can be quite important, but it makes it, for many of us, it makes us harder just to experience more directly what we're, what we're experiencing in the body or what the emotions are. So with mindfulness, we have a more direct experience, not so mediated by concepts, right? Not so mediated by thoughts, but we can be, you know, that translates into being with the tree or being with the sunset without so much thinking going on or without so much memory going on. Can I just be with the, with the raw experience of the sunset? It makes it possible for me to be with a friend without thinking all the time what I'm going to say, right? That's what mindfulness helps us to do, just to be present, to listen, to be with the sunset, to be to be with a friend. Another quality of mindfulness is that there's a quality of openness. We're not trying to control experience. 
You know, and this is sometimes very subtle. That's one of the things that I certainly discovered when I was, when I've been practicing mindfulness, is the, the extent to which that there can be sometimes a more gross or sometimes a more subtle control of experience. Does anyone notice this in, just in your practice? That I can be sitting there, and sometimes it's very, very subtle. I, I, it took me 10 years of a lot of practice, probably two hours a day, and then I had a retreat where I noticed, gosh, I'm kind of scared of the present moment. Wow, that's kind of weird. I didn't notice that before, but I noticed I don't want to just be with the present moment as it is. I would kind of want to control it so it's more to my liking, right? And that, that's, that's a, that can be a more subtle level that we notice. But that was shocking for me that, that I thought I was open to experience. But I noticed, you know, there are more gross levels of controlling experience and there are more subtle levels. It's something that we notice. But the direction of mindfulness is to have more and more quality of being open. And this permits us to be with uh, material that we might call more unconscious. It lets us uh, be with our habits. It lets us notice what's beneath the surface. And you know, a lot of beautiful qualities come forth too. But there's, there's that quality of openness. A very crucial quality of mindfulness is also that it's non-reactive. That we can be with difficult experiences. I can be with unpleasant experiences without trying to push them away. I can be with the, with the pleasant without grasping. I can be with the unpleasant without pushing away. That's really right at the center of mindfulness. And it's something that we, uh, you know, we, we learn gradually. You know, a lot of times we're, you know, maybe mindful to some extent, and then we get caught up in reactivity. But then we can be mindful, at least even label, oh, I'm being reactive. Mindfulness of reactivity is not necessarily reactive. That's pretty interesting. Mindfulness of anger is not angry, right? So there's that, there's that quality. Another aspect of mindfulness is that it makes possible wisdom that it's like we're almost like a scientist just studying our experience over and over again. And basically, most of us are slow learners. It takes us watching the same pattern of mind a hundred times before we have the, an insight into it. Oh, look at that. This is what I do. Anyone notice that we're slow learners? We don't notice something the first time. It may take the hundredth or the five hundredth time. That's why it's good to keep on practicing, right? That it's, uh, that we, uh, but it makes possible seeing clearly because there's, there's, you know, the, the notion of awakening is that our awakened qualities are actually deeper in our being than our habits. And that awakening, wisdom, love, compassion, are actually our basic nature. But they get covered over by our habits. And so pursuing or developing these uh, qualities of awakening is more and more touching into yeah, to what Achan Cha called our original mind, our, you know, the deeper level of our being. 
And it, you know, part of that is wisdom, part of that is compassion. We might say kind of the, um, the wise heart, you know, to use a phrase that Jack Kornfield developed, that this is our, this is our basic nature. And as we practice more and more, this is our home. This is our home. This is where we live from more and more. We, and again, the, the methodology is that we keep on looking. We keep on looking. We keep on looking. And even if we think, oh, this is not leading anywhere, we have the discipline to keep looking. And then, you know, the 300th time we look at something, okay, let me look at my anger. Okay, I looked at it. Eh, I'm not learning anything. I'm still kind of irritated. Eh, let's quit meditation. And something you says, no, let's keep going. And then the 500th time, the 500th time, oh, now I see it. Oh, I get it. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I'm glad I didn't quit after 300 times looking at it, right? So that's how it works, right? Anyone notice that, that you have to keep looking? How many people have noticed sometimes you see something after you keep looking that you wouldn't have noticed if you just stopped, right? So that's really, really crucial. And then last thing I wanted to say about mindfulness is that it has, it has that quality of compassion and kindness. So, you know, I, I, I keep repeating that line from Sylvia Borstein, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet this moment as a friend. That points to the quality of kindness, or it's something like when we really listen to a friend, there's a quality of almost of love there, right? When I just listen to my experience, there can, there increasingly can be a quality of kindness and care. And mature mindfulness has that quality of kindness, care, compassion. So it's a blend ultimately of, of wisdom and compassion. And, and this, this is also true when we bring it to, when we bring the mindfulness to our experience, maybe we have a difficult interaction with someone. And the more we're mindful of my mind and keep on noticing things, we can see that, we can see that um, there are causes and conditions. We notice more patterns. This is the wisdom aspect of, of, of mindfulness, actually. And it also is a very crucial quality of equanimity. So let me mention a little bit about equanimity and then I'll talk about how to practice them. Then we can have our, our discussion about all this. So equanimity is also this really, really crucial quality. And I, in the, some of the teachings of the Buddha, he says that of these seven factors of awakening, mindfulness and equanimity are our foundations. You know, and then there are the other five, which I'll, which I'll talk about in future, future gatherings. And so equanimity is the quality of being balanced and non-reactive increasingly no matter what is happening. It's a very, very uh, deep and in some ways advanced quality. But it's the ability to be balanced and stable even with difficulties, even with really pleasant experiences that we can, that we can, um, that we can notice them. We can be balanced with unpleasant experiences. We can be balanced with pleasant experiences. This is, this is really what equanimity points to. 
there's also a quality of evenness. We don't get overly excited about the good stuff, and we just we don't we don't get as uh, negative and reactive about the difficult stuff. But there is a quality of evenness. One of my favorite expressions of this comes from the Japanese haiku writer Basho from the uh, 17th century. You know, and I, I give I give this from time to time because I really like it. It's a haiku about him. Uh, taking a little trip, and he says, Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. <laughs> Remember haiku or just 17 syllables? <laughs> so I'm calling this an equanimity haiku. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. So the reason I'm calling it equanimity is because he's not reactive about the horse or about the fleas and the lice, just very matter-of-factly noting them, right? That's, I'm calling that a quality of equanimity. You know, and maybe he, um, maybe he did have a discussion the next day with his horse. We don't know. It's not in the haiku. That could be. But there, there's a quality also with equanimity, where it's, there's a sense of balance, which increasingly is um, able to be with more and more, be balanced and almost unshakable. You know, this happens, I have some balance. That happens, I have some balance. You know, I, I remember from my own experience, about two years into my meditation, I was at a retreat, and I had a really, really difficult... Um, you know, evening, like my mind was feeling kind of really out of control. And um, it was it was a little bit scary, but there was part of me that was being mindful. And I was amazed, right? Like my mind was just kind of, it was in the middle of the night, and I was just, I was, I was actually a little bit crazy for about two hours. But I noticed that there was part of my mind that was just staying with it, balanced, and not worried. Really interesting. You know, that's the quality of equanimity, which was there in that experience a little bit, but increasingly that's there, that's there a lot. You know, in all sorts of circumstances, unshakable from the Buddha, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame, as a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear hearing the teachings. You know, equanimity also has the wisdom aspect of understanding that I was talking about, seeing the causes and conditions. You know, maybe you have a difficult family relationship, and sometimes maybe you've, you've brought your wisdom to it and say, you know, and I, I've thought about this sometimes, or any kind of relationship, you know, given who given who I am, given who this other person is, it's almost like the causes and conditions made for some difficulty in our relationship. And it, it almost couldn't be otherwise. And that doesn't mean you don't try to change it, but there can be an understanding of causes and conditions. You know, and I remember um, talking to Dr. A.T. Ariaratne from Sri Lanka who developed um, uh, programs, really, for 
uh, Sri Lanka, which brought together Buddhist practice with a kind of activism that helped um, stop the civil war there. And he said, we have to really have the long view and understand causes and conditions. The civil war in Sri Lanka was 500 years in formation, including colonialism and so forth. And he said, to really have proper perspective, we need a 500-year plan to end the civil war and develop a healthy culture. And he said, I need to really have that long view to help me have the balance. So that's an understanding of causes and conditions. And that's an aspect of equanimity. So how do we practice with, I could say more about equanimity. It's one of my, my favorite uh, qualities. So how do we cultivate mindfulness and equanimity in our practice and in daily life? And I'm going to encourage us to choose to develop this in the next, could be the next week or the next few weeks, maybe till I come back again. So how do we develop mindfulness in our formal practice? We can do this in different ways, you know, very, um, you know, the, the core teachings on mindfulness give us four ways to be mindful. We can be mindful of the body, we can be mindful of the uh, sense of pleasant or unpleasant, which is very, very crucial for seeing when there's reactivity, because when we're not mindful, we will tend to grasp after the pleasant and push away the unpleasant. So we can be mindful with the pleasant or unpleasant. We can be mindful of our thoughts and emotions. We can be um, mindful of reactivity. So one way of cultivating mindfulness in our formal practice is to choose to be with one of those forms of mindfulness. You know, or to, it might be, let me really be with mindfulness of the breath for the whole city and cultivate mindfulness of the breath. Notice the different parts of the breath. We can work with mindfulness of pleasant or unpleasant, which is a very, can be a very powerful way to practice in daily life. Can I notice when there's sort of a, um, a moderate or strong sense of pleasant? Can I notice when there's a moderate or strong sense of unpleasant, maybe in my meditation or in my a daily life, because what's going to typically happen when I'm not mindful is I'll tend to grasp after the pleasant, really pleasant uh, sensation with food. Uh, and I, do I notice that? Do I tend to grasp after it? One, another piece of cake or whatever. So another way of practicing might be to really look for the pleasant or the unpleasant. We can be mindful during a meal and look for the pleasant and the unpleasant. That can be very, very interesting. We can be mindful of thoughts and emotions. I can particularly, maybe during daily life, have a lookout for when my mind becomes reactive, when I'm, when I'm getting sort of uh, um, judgmental or pushing away something or really having uh, a way that I'm not liking something and getting a little bit agitated. I can notice when I'm really grasping on. Particularly, we can look at our stories, you know, and what's my what's the story that I'm telling now? Is it a reactive? Is it a reactive story? So these are some of the ways that we can be mindful. And I was thinking also um, when I was working on the uh, the book called the um, 
engaged spiritual life, I developed a list of 60 ways of being mindful in daily life. And I was really excited about it, and I was disappointed. My editor thought the book was a little bit too long, and she edited it out. And my 60 ways of supporting mindfulness in daily life was cut. Oh, but I still have it, and it still is helpful. So I wanted to just to name a few of these. I had 60 of them. So here are some ways of developing mindfulness. You know, on um, every morning, be mindfully present to the natural world for some time. Maybe you take a walk every morning. Take short breaks for five or ten minutes during the day and be mindful. Maybe doing walking. Be mindful for five minutes before a meal. Have one meal where you, you're mindful during the whole meal. And I, I don't, I'm not listing these to have you do all 60 of them. But listen for one or two that resonate with you. Take a short mindfulness walk after a meal. Be mindful right before going to sleep for five or ten or minutes or half an hour. For a given week, make a vow to be mindful during a particular activity like cooking or brushing your teeth or gardening or taking a walk. Once a week, take a few hours or even the whole day to be mindful during your Sabbath day. That will strengthen mindfulness. Ask periodically during the day, what's happening? Work with pauses. You know, have three or four times during the day where you just stop and say, what's happening? Okay, is that enough? Okay, you get the idea. You know, there, and they, my, my suggestion is take one or two of them. You know, I, I I'm, I'm only on 20 on my list. I have another 40 that I could give, but I, I think I won't go there. Um, here, here's, I'll give one more. When the phone rings, be mindful for two or three rings before answering. How's that? So these, all, these, all these practices we can do, right? And so then how to, be, how to work with um, equanimity. I think, I think there's a parallel that equanimity is something that we especially learn by noticing when we're reactive. And so I think when we look out for any moments when we're kind of reactive, grasping, pushing away, a little bit agitated, look for those moments and work with them, bring mindfulness to them. A lot of equanimity, a lot of the non-reactivity of equanimity is developed by really studying and practicing equanimity. That would be both in our formal meditation and in daily life. So again, I'm, I'm suggesting the great value of pausing. Pausing is so central, especially in our daily lives. You know, just stop for a minute or two when you can and ask what's happening. If you're agitated, 
stop and say, can I look into this? Can I feel this in the body? Can I be with it? We looked, I think, a few months ago at uh, one of the best teachings for developing equanimity, and that's called the teaching of the eight worldly winds. Remember that? That's looking at pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, sort of a good reputation, bad reputation, and then praise and blame, right? And if we, if we track for those eight, we'll get a really good sense of what knocks us around. So a lot of equanimity practice is in noticing what knocks us around a little bit, either towards grasping or towards pushing away. And we study those. You know, we really can, uh, you know, when, when we notice one of those eight worldly winds, we want to name them, see them clearly, see if we can look at them, have the vow not to try to get rid of them. I notice, you know, I notice I'm being really judgmental of myself. Can I study it? You know, can I look at it, not to immediately get rid of it? Can I look at what it's like in the body? Can I notice what the storyline is? Can I bring inquiry and investigation to, to uh, my experience with praise and blame or gain and loss or someone saying something good about me or bad about me? So those are a few suggestions. We've, we've looked in more depth at these ways of uh, developing equanimity. A quick way of saying it is that bring, bring mindfulness and inquiry to any moment when you sort of lose it in some way, when you're not present, and that will help with equanimity. So I thought I'd end with the, uh, the, the Rumi poem called The Guest House, which I think many of you know, which is really about being, it's basically about being really interested in whatever you're experiencing and looking at it. And this is where, this is really where awakening comes from. It's from being really experts and students of our own experience, particularly where we get a little bit caught or stuck. So from Rumi, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. The guests may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So let's sit for a moment and I'll invite you to reflect on what might have given you some energy. Is there a way that you'd like to practice in the next week or two? or longer with mindfulness and equanimity. What appeals to you? And sit with that and then also bring in any reflection on anything you'd like to ask about or look at more, more deeply. And take about a minute of reflection both upon what energizes you and anywhere that you'd like to explore further.
So thanks everyone. We have, have a little bit of time for discussion, actually a good chunk of time. And uh, could be sharing something that's been helpful for you for cultivating mindfulness and equanimity or equanimity or a question about anything I said. We have uh, first Kathleen. and um, Carlita, is it possible for you to do the... Um, have the view of speaker, so it has both uh, the person and myself. Is that possible? Great. Hi, Kathleen. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, great. And let me do a, a show of hands. How many of how many of us here are planners? We have a lot of planning. Okay. Not everyone, but a lot of us. So I think we're looking at something that's, that's shared and maybe others can share as well. I think the first thing is was just noticing the pattern, right? And that, that's very significant. And it's also, uh, you know, recognizing that planning has many good qualities and virtues. So it's not a matter of um, getting rid of the planning. Um, I think it was, for me, eye-opening as to how much I planned. So when I, when I could be mindful and notice how much planning there was, I could come to an understanding that I think my planning is excessive. I don't need to do it so much, right? And what that concretely in my meditation, that mean, meant that I didn't have to uh, keep going with it, even if it was an interesting idea. Something which helped me a lot from a practical point of view um, over time was actually um, having a boundary. And, you know, it, it's true, I think, as you were suggesting, that when we practice mindfulness, it's a pretty good space for planning. We have insights, there's no distraction, right? Why not? <laughs> right? And so what I, what I have done quite often is I've had a boundary and I, you know, I have a certain period for meditation, maybe it's half an hour. And then I say, during that half hour, if I notice planning, I'm not going to um, continue with it. I'm not going to indulge in it. But I'm going to, um, after the 30 minutes, I'm going to give myself five or 10 minutes to use the meditative space and do some and do some planning. So actually having a boundary and making some use of being in the meditative space, but being fairly rigorous in waiting till the half hour is over. And in other words, having a dedicated planning time when I'm in a pretty good space and being careful about, you know, taking notes on what I'll remember. Um, when that 10 minutes comes up. So you have to be, you have to be disciplined, right? 
So that that actually, I think that's that's a big part of it, having the boundary, and um, you know, and there, you know, so some, so I think the the two things that are coming most to me are that I saw that I was planning excessively and I could do less, and then secondly, having boundaries. So that those are two things which immediately come to mind. Yeah, does that is that a good start? Yeah. Well, um, he, I mean, that, that you can reflect on. The other thing that occurred to me is when you notice planning in your meditation time, do some inquiry. Because like I say, I think, you know, for me, the planning was a mixture of, you know, it's something that was in my family, could do it pretty well. But there's something um, that came, maybe came out of some anxiety or fear like it's mingled with the planning. And so if you actually, during the um, meditation, you notice the planning impulse happen, go into the body. What's, you know, okay, planning urges are there. What's it like in the body? What's it like in the emotions? And we're not trying to say, okay, we'll find anxiety, not, not predicting it, but just really in an open way, um, explore what's there for you when there's a lot of planning energy. Great, thank thank you. Uh, great question, um, Joanne, please. Hi. Mm-hmm. 
You know what, um, Joanne, just want is, to, is there a question about practice coming out of this? Because I'm, I'm, I want to protect the time some for other people also. I would say start with um, one, one good thing to do is to really have a strong intention to track reactivity in your practice. And the interesting thing is that when you have bigger things happen, like what happened to you, it's often harder to remember to um, uh, say, oh, I'm being reactive. Let me just pause. Let me just settle. It's harder because it's big, it's involved, you know, involves important things and so forth. And so a very good way to practice is to look for reactivity in small things. Look for small examples of reactivity during the day. Have a very strong intention to study them when they come up. Have a pause. And if you do it with the small or moderate things, and really get good at those, they'll be there for the bigger things much more likely. Because the, you know, but if we're not practicing with the smaller or moderate things, the bigger things, it's just, it's too much of a alert, you know, to, ah, crisis, you know, you know, forget mindfulness, forget equanimity. And so I would say this is a really, I mean, it actually is a really related to a core principle of all of our training is that we train where it's not too hard and then we bring it to the hard stuff. And so I would say really focus on the small stuff where there's reactivity 
you know, just a small thing like, you know, being grasping after a second piece of pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, which I know none, none of us did that. This is just a hypothetical example. So, <laughs> okay, that may be big, but yeah, I would say work with the small or moderate stuff and that, that'll, that'll get you um, trained for, you know, and then it'll be much more likely that you'll do it when something larger happens. Thank, thanks so much. Maybe uh, last one, Victoria. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> wow, thanks, Victoria. It's a really, uh, it's a brilliant technique, you know, and um, when I when I look at it, I can see aspects of both mindfulness and equanimity because that technique depends on being able to identify now I'm worrying, right? It, it depends on the mindfulness and then it also de depends on enough equanimity so I'm not caught up in the worry now. I can actually postpone the worrying till later, right? So there has to be a certain amount of equanimity as well. We, that we're not totally caught in it, right? And so it actually is sort of a stealth spiritual technique. <laughs> a stealth, you know, or, um, because it's actually seeming to give us plenty of room for worrying, but the actual technique of doing it undermines the worrying by mindfulness and equanimity. So it's a very interesting technique. Yeah, thank you. Um, Anna, I saw your hand up. Did you have something? If you have something quick, we can uh, bring it in. Oh, yeah. Go, go into to pause. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's related to, you know, um, the work I've done for a lot of years on working with the judgmental mind. And, you know, the, the beginning tools are to really, um, uh, first of all, know the level of intensity 
uh, that's there. You know, is it workable or does it feel like too much, right? Some because sometimes those voices can be too much, and then we need, you know, a different strategy. Maybe just to basically, uh, basically, to could be to be with something beautiful or to do something really that that gets us out of the old pattern. Um, but if it's workable, uh, mindfulness, just studying the pattern a lot can be really helpful. But then if you're going into this painful territory, combine the mindfulness with something like compassion that really holds it with care and kindness, maybe with another person, maybe just with yourself. So I would say those, those would be the three, three initial guidelines. Yeah, yeah. So, so it could be not necessarily even to go to compassion, but to develop uh, loving kindness or compassion uh, towards others, or just being with beauty. Uh, you know. So, yeah. I think your point is important that when we have self-judgment, loving kindness towards self or compassion towards self is harder. So, the so point is bring in some of the heart energy, but not maybe not towards yourself. Bring loving kindness towards another. Be with beauty, the beauty of the trees or the forest, the mountains. And just basically that which is uplifting for you. That's the short version. Okay. Thanks, thanks Anna. Great. So let's finish with two things. First, uh, again, bring to mind how you might like to continue this theme. How many of you would like to work, especially developing mindfulness and or equanimity in, in the daily life for the next, let's say, at least the next week? How many of you would like to take that on? Okay, that's great. So, see... Bring to mind now, how will I do that? What could be one or two ways of practicing will help me? What are those for you? And then what will help me remember, let's say, tomorrow? What will help me remember to bring those into operation? Should I write a note to myself, have something, you know, somewhere in my house, on the refrigerator, whatever? And then we'll close with the uh, dedication of merit, remembering that our practice is very much for our own awakening, but it's also for the awakening of others. May our time together and our own practice be of benefit to ourselves and be of benefit to others. Ultimately, be of benefit to all others. And knowing that we wish, when we wish for the awakening of all beings, we wish for our own awakening as well, that we are part of all beings.
So thank you so much for your kind attention. And if you want to unmute, we can uh, say goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Until next time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. Yeah. Good. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. Till next time.